Okay, let's just pray pray as we uh, come to uh, think about God's word. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. We pray now that you'd help us to uh, focus on it. We pray that by your spirit that we would be enlightened and that we would be changed. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. February the 12th, 1851 was an important day in the history of Australia. Something happened on that day that uh, changed the whole nation. Edward Hargraves had walked to a remote uh, little valley just a little little way outside of Bathurst and armed with a spade with a uh, trowel and a tin dish he discovered gold. Gold, exactly. Now, before then, there had been uh, rumours that there might be gold in Australia. Uh, there had been uh, even some people who it said had found some specks of gold, but uh, the government had covered it up because they didn't actually want a big kind of uh, change in the social fabric at that particular time. Uh, but uh, in 1851, the discovery that Hargraves made made the difference. Uh, you see, a few weeks later, uh, on um, April the 3rd, he wrote to the colonial secretary uh, with a proposition. He said, uh, if you give me £500, I'll tell you where the gold is. Smart man. They haggled over the exact deal, but when the deal was struck, within a few days that tiny, remote, unknown little valley just outside of Bathurst had a population of 1,000. Uh, 1,000. Uh, indeed, as uh, news spread that, in fact, Australia did have gold, and as other people started to search for it and found it, uh, they found in Victoria the richest gold fields in the whole world. The rush was on. Uh, thousands of men quit their jobs. Um, bankers, lawyers, doctors, tradesmen, labourers in Sydney and Melbourne. They just got out of Sydney and Melbourne and they headed for the goldfields. Uh, in the following year, as news spread around the world that there was gold in Australia, in the following year, in 1852... 370,000 migrants arrived by boat on our shores. 370,000 migrants, in one, and the population then was so small. And these uh, new settlers, they brought with them their, their skills, uh, their trades, uh, and their cultures. Uh, the discovery of gold uh, radically changed the social and the economic life of Australia. Many of the, uh, of, of the, of the settlers actually did settle and stay uh, long-term in Australia. Why did it make such a change, this discovery? Well, it's pretty simple, really. Gold is precious. Gold is valuable. In 622 BC, in the city of Jerusalem, 
a discovery much more valuable than gold was made. Uh, it was a discovery which profoundly changed the social and the religious life of the whole nation of Judah. It was a discovery which actually impacts uh, our lives here in Australia in 2011. It impacts our lives right now uh, in this building. It was a great discovery. Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 22, you might want to have this open, it's on page 279. In 2 Kings chapter 22, the man who sat on the throne of Judah at that time was King Josiah. Now, King Josiah was the second youngest king to ever sit on the throne in Judah. Uh, he became king at the age of eight. And in 2 Kings chapter 22, he is still a young man been sitting on the throne for 18 years. He's now about 26 years of age. And he decided to embark on a project. He decided it was high time that uh, they got the renovation job done on the temple in Jerusalem. They had the money to do this renovation. That had already been raised. And so in verses 3 through to 7, a, a team of Contractors had been organised, carpenters, stonemasons, builders, and the job was to begin to renovate the temple. What King Josiah did not expect was that in the renovation that they would make the, the, one of the greatest discoveries of all time. Now, to understand this, we need to backtrack a little bit. Uh, we need to think about the, the kings before Josiah. You see, the, the two kings before him uh, were ungodly. His father Ammon was an ungodly man. Uh, his grandfather Manasseh was terrible. Uh, he, was, he was a dreadful king. Although in, uh, we read in the book of 2 Chronicles that he actually repented. But let me tell you about Manasseh. Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, was so ungodly that he had turned the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem into a temple for worshipping false gods. Now, Manasseh was king for 55 years. That's a long time, isn't it? Almost as long as Queen Elizabeth. And when you're king for 55 years, what that means is that there's whole generations that have grown up in the land and and he's the only king that they've ever known. And in his 55-year rule, uh, he made great compromises and he uh, introduced idolatry uh, not only uh, all around Judea but into the temple itself. Now, you can do a lot of good in 55 years. You can do a lot of bad in 55 years. Think about this. During the reign of Manasseh, what would have happened to the copy of the scriptures, a book or a scroll that was used in, in the temple uh, so that people might hear God's word? What would have happened to that copy of the scriptures? Well, it was squeezed out of their temple worship. Uh, they, they would have thought, well, it's no longer necessary. I mean, we've got these new 
gods. We've got these new idols. We've got these new altars uh, so that we can worship. We don't need the scriptures anymore. And so this, the scriptures were just kind of pushed to one side and uh, they were tucked away somewhere. And over the years, they just, you know, were, they were actually lost in the temple. Now, what would happen to us? What would happen to people like you and me uh, if we stopped reading God's word, if we stopped nourishing our souls on the word of God over a period of time? What would happen to us? Well, firstly, the knowledge of God would fade from our memories. We would become ignorant of God, of who he is and of how he wants us to live. And when God is not in your life, you, you've got this empty emptiness. You've got this vacuum that needs to be filled up with something. And so we would try to fill the emptiness of our lives with, with false gods, like the false god of, of money, the false god of materialism, the false god of success, the false god of, of, uh, of popularity of, or of pleasure. Try to fill our lives with these things, which can only lead to ultimate emptiness. Indeed, religion itself can become the, the, the idol. When you set aside the, the knowledge of God and you've still got this, this need within you, uh, you can replace the knowledge of God with, with ritual, uh, with ceremony, uh, with religion. And that's the irony, isn't it, that religion can replace God. And so imagine what happened in the land of Judah during the reign of Manasseh and his ungodly son Ammon. So that by the time of Josiah, uh, pagan idolatry was just flourishing all over the land of Judah until this day. Until this day, as, as they were clearing out the temple, clearing out all the old rubbish, Getting, getting rid of it all so that the stonemasons, the builders and the carpenters can come in and do their, their work. And the high priest found something very, very special. Made a discovery. Let's have a look at it in verses 8 to 10. I'm going to read that for you, verse 8. It says, Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Would have been a scroll, by the way, a possibly of animal skin or of, uh, or of papyrus. And he gave it to Shaphan who read it. Then Shaphan the secretary went to the king and reported to him two things. He says, well, firstly, your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. But secondly, <clears throat> then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. A book. Notice that he doesn't actually say to the king what the book is. He just says, a book. And he starts reading this book in the presence of the king. And as he started reading from it, as King Josiah heard the words from this book, he was 
captivated by it. And we're told that he tore his royal robes. Later on in verse 19, we're told that he wept, that he broke down in tears because, friends, this was no ordinary book. These were no ordinary words that he was listening to. For the first time in his life, the king was hearing the very words of God, the creator. And he was cut to the heart. Well, in verses 11 through to 20, King Josiah was now greatly concerned because of what he'd read, was read to him. Because as the word of God, and it's referred to as the book of the law or the book of the covenant, uh, it's, uh, the, it's the, it, some scholars say it was, may have been the book of Deuteronomy. But as this was being read to him, something became very, very clear. And that is that what he saw, what he heard that God desired was not what was going on all around in Judah. And in fact, uh, this book of the law said that there was great punishment. There would be great punishment on the nation uh, if they were worshipping idols. So he was greatly concerned. And what he did was this. He, he put together a delegation of, uh, of officials to go and to speak to a prophet to find out more. And we read about this in verses 12 through to 13. Let me read that for you. Uh, Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Achor, Shaphim and Isaiah went to speak to the prophetess Holder. I'm sorry, uh, verse 12. Uh, He gave these words to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. They They have... not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. So he sent the delegation. And the delegation went to, to a prophetess. Uh, her name was Holder. What does Holder say? Well, in verses 15 through to 20, she says basically two things. Number one, uh, yes. God would punish the nation of Judah with destruction. The nation was going to be wiped out because of the idolatry. The the, the promise of punishment that uh, that, uh, Josiah had had read to him in this book of the law would come true. That's number one. Number two, because Josiah was a godly man, the promised destruction of Judah would happen after his death. wouldn't happen in his lifetime, so he would ha- not have to witness it for himself. Now, how, how could he have reacted to this, Josiah? Well, on one hand, he could have breathed a sigh of relief and said, Phew, you know, at least I'm not going to be punished. 
Uh, also, he could have been in great despair for his people uh, because he knew that they would be punished. But what happens next tells us, and by the way, we should be greatly concerned for those around us who do not love, obey and trust God because the promise of punishment is for this generation as well. For all those who disobey God, who, dis who reject the gospel of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, eternal destruction forever awaits. But what, what happens next tells us that Josiah's main concern was actually for the honour and the glory of the Lord God Almighty. Uh, in chapter 23, verses 1 to 3, he gathered the whole nation together. And in their presence, he read the, the, the whole book that had been discovered in the temple so that everyone could hear. And then he promised, he made a personal commitment, he made a covenant with God himself to follow the Lord God and to, commit, and, to, and to keep every one of God's commands with all of his heart and with all of his soul. And then the people promised the same thing. Now I want to just flesh that out for a few moments. What does it mean to love God and to, and to obey him with all of your heart and all of your soul? What kind of love is that? I have one word for it. It's a passionate love. It's not a dry, intellectual love and obedience. It's not half-hearted. It's not lukewarm. It's committed. It's passionate. That's what it means to love God and obey him with all of your heart and all of your soul. And back in chapter 22, verse 2, there's a description of Josiah. And he says that he was a man who did not turn to the right or to the left. Did you notice that? We read that. He didn't turn to the right. What do you think that means? Well, I take it that it means that he was a man who stayed on track. I take it that that means that when it came to the honour and the glory of God, that you know how much compromise he would have made? Zero. No compromise. He stayed on track. Didn't turn to the right, didn't turn to the left. One of the uh, favourite shows that uh, we're watching in our household at the moment on TV is MasterChef. Any MasterChef fans around here? <laughs> it's changing the way we eat. Um, <clears throat> are you going to watch it tonight? They're having their New York challenge. It's been pretty interesting um, uh, over the last few days. Um, in tonight's show, the contestants have to cook for a special guest. Do anyone know who that special guest is? Louder, please. The Dalai Lama. All right, so if you're in the presence of the Dalai Lama, how are you supposed to address him? What's his title? 
His holiness. He's spot on there, brother. His holiness. You're supposed to refer to him as your holiness. Would you? Uh, one of the contestants uh, is Kate Brax. Now, she's, uh, Kate's a 36-year-old mum from Orange, and she's a Christian. You didn't know that, did you? Uh, when the Dalai Lama came to Australia last year, there was all sorts of public meetings and so on, and there was one luncheon where certain Christian leaders were invited to and some well-known Christian identities... Uh, who you would all know if I mentioned their names, but I'm not going to do so, uh, they quite happily uh, addressed him as your holiness. He's the leader of a pagan religion. He's a nice man. He has some great wisdom. He's quite a funny kind of guy, but he's a leader of a pagan religion. You know, these Christian leaders calling him your holiness... Not Kate. Not Kate Brax. <laughs> You've got to watch this tonight. I don't know if they'll show, show it or not. But apparently the other MasterChef competitors, they kind of spoke about being, oh, his energy and you know, his aura. And it's, but Kate said, no, I don't actually see him as a holy man. She said, and I quote, my belief is that God is the only one who is perfectly holy. End of quote. You see that under the pressure of Master Chef, Kate didn't turn to the right, didn't turn to the left, zero compromise, didn't budge, didn't buckle. I think Josiah would have given her the thumbs up <laughs> because that's exactly what Josiah did. Jo Josiah didn't buckle, he didn't budge. Zero compromise. And so in chapter 23, which we didn't read, in chapter 23, Josiah did everything possible to obliterate um, pagan religion and idolatry in the land. How did he do that? Well, let's just, let me just take, it through you, take you through it. Firstly, uh, in verses 4 through to 14 of chapter 23, he destroyed every shrine, every idol, and every form of false worship in the entire nation of Judah. Let me just read to you one section, just so that you can get a little glimpse of what happened. Uh, I'll read to you verses 4 through to 7. Uh, you got that, verse 4? The king ordered Hilkiah, the high priest the priests next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. Can you imagine that? In the temple of the Lord there were articles that were for Baal and for Asherah and for astrology. He burnt them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. He did away with the pagan priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense on the high places of the towns of Judah and on those around Jerusalem, those who burnt incense to Baal, to the sun and moon, to the constellations and to all the starry hosts. 
He took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burnt it there. He ground it to powder and scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. He also tore down the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes which were in the temple of the Lord and where women did weaving for Asherah. The this is a snapshot of how putrid their worship had become. Notice what he did to the Asherah pole that was inside the temple. He didn't just kind of remove it and you know put it into the wheelie bin or the garbage dump. No, no, he, he took it outside of the city. He burnt it. And then what was remaining, he crushed it so that it was ash. And then he went and scattered it over the graves of dead people. That was not to desecrate the graves of dead people. That was to desecrate the Asherah pole. <laughs> because uh, in their thinking, you know, you come into contact with the dead and you're desecrated. Secondly, so he obliterated idol worship in in Judah. Secondly, in verses 15 to 20, he actually crossed over the border in the north into Samaria, into the northern, into the northern kingdom, which was now occupied and controlled by the Assyrians. Now, remember the problem in the northern kingdom? The, the big problem, the one issue that none of the northern kings ever dealt with was the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Remember what Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, had done? He'd set up a golden calf at Bethel and Dan. And even the reason the, the not-so-bad kings in the northern kingdom, they never dealt with that well. Josiah did. He did. He went to, to Bethel and he demolished the altar which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, had set up, the golden calves. And then he went throughout Samaria and he destroyed every high place, every altar, every shrine, everything. Thirdly, in verses 24 to 25, he got rid of the mediums and the spiritists, those people who claimed to be fortune tellers, that they could tell the future by consulting the dead. We've still got people like that around today, don't we? And he got rid of that. But he didn't just empty the land of all this false religion and leave it as a vacuum, no. He then replaced it with the true worship of God. And so in verses 21 to 23, he reinstituted the Passover. Let's have a look at that, verse 21. In verse 21. The king gave this order to all the people. Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. And get this, friends. Not since the days of the judges who led Israel, nor throughout the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah had any such Passover been observed. God had saved them out of Egypt. But they didn't remember that. 
But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. It's breathtaking uh, what, uh, what happened. The, the, the discovery made in the temple on that day changed everything. It was the discovery which started a profound spiritual reformation. Now, how do you evaluate Josiah? Uh, for some people, Josiah is an absolute hero. Others would say he's a nutcase. He's a fanatic. He's a iconoclastic, rampaging, out-of-control... Right? Well, you know whose opinion of Josiah matters most? God's opinion. Let's have a look at what God thought about Josiah. Verse 25 of chapter 23. This is the evaluation. Yeah, everyone got it? Verse 25. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. There was no king before him, not David, not Solomon, not any king before him, no king after him who gets this kind of rap. Thumbs up from God. Now, of course, ultimately, and we'll see this next week, ultimately, the nation of Judah as Holder the prophetess had said, would be destroyed and would be sent into exile in Babylon. Because what, what was needed is not just a one-generation patch-up job. Ultimately, what was needed was a new covenant, a new spirit, a new heart and the forgiveness of sins. The fresh start which we all need, the fresh start which we can all receive through the ultimate fulfilment of every promise that God has made through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And if we're Christians, we've experienced that, haven't we? But if we are people who have experienced God's um, forgiveness and salvation through Jesus then what, what message does this passage have for us today? Well, let me try to flesh that out before we finish. I want to say this, that there's one truth about Josiah that you simply cannot miss. And that is this, that he was wholeheartedly and passionately committed to bringing the beliefs and the practices of God's people into line with the word of God. That was his passion. And that is just as important for the Christian church today. Because friends, uh, God does not want us to be living in alignment with the word of God. Oh, sorry, Satan does not want us to be living in alignment with the word of God. Satan does not want us to be people who have a clear understanding of the gospel. He does not want us to trust in Jesus alone for salvation. He doesn't want us to live for God. He doesn't want us to be forgiven. 
doesn't want us to honour and glorify God. And so he would be much happier if, if our Bibles, he'd be much happier if our Bibles at home were gathering dust. He would be much happier if, if the Word of God was not being read, not being proclaimed in our churches. Um, he would be much happier if your understanding of the gospel was just kind of vague and, and fuzzy and hazy. He'd be much happier uh, if we replaced Bible teaching with ceremony and, and ritual and, and fresh new things. Because when we do that, what happens is that the word of God, uh, the message of salvation, gets lost. It gets buried under a, under a pile of religion, just as it was in the temple. So we need to stay on track. How do we stay on track? Well, there's a lot of things that could be said, but let me just make a couple of points and then I'll close. I wonder if you've noticed uh, in the New Testament that when the apostles, um, take for example the Apostle Paul, when the Apostle Paul writes to Christian churches, what does he normally do? He writes to, to churches who know the gospel, who understand the gospel, who believe the gospel, and what does he always do in his letters? He reminds them of the gospel. Have you noticed that? You'd think, well, why does he need to do that? Why doesn't he just get on with the practical application? <laughs> he, he always expounds the gospel to them again and again and again because Paul knows that if he stops reminding them of the gospel, guess what? They're going to forget the gospel, even though they're Christians. I think the old saying is true that the first generation believes the gospel, the second generation assumes the gospel, and the third generation forgets the gospel. And so Paul keeps on explaining the gospel to Christians because he doesn't want them to neglect it, he doesn't want them to forget it. Now, unlike, uh, unlike Josiah... Church leaders generally don't go around smashing idols. Some do. Some do. I've heard of that happening. And uh, during the time of the Reformation, uh, some of the reformers, I uh, think particularly a guy by the name of Philip Melanchthon, went around to the churches that had all these statues to, you know, to uh, all these statues of Jesus and that sort of thing and smashed idols. But the one thing which church leaders must be committed to doing is to smash false teaching. We see this in the scriptures. Uh, let me just give you a couple of examples of that. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, a, a young man, a bit like Josiah in some senses, and uh, Timothy is being given responsibility to, to pastor a church and Paul, say, Paul instructs him 
to command certain people in the church to stop teaching certain things. So here's this young bloke facing people in the congregation who are going around teaching certain things in the church that they're not to teach and he's got to front up to them and say, hey, you've got to stop it. Now that's not easy. You've got to you got to be a person who's got a bit of bit of spine, a bit of backbone. But it's spine and backbone, it's courage that comes from actually trusting in God. It's the same in um, uh, when you think about the qualities that are necessary for church leaders. It, it's obvious that uh, the qualities that church leaders need uh, involve this. In, in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, and I've written this out for you on your outline so that you can follow it more easily. Uh, amongst other things, this is what's required of, of, a, of an overseer of the church, an elder. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. Now notice that. It's not that he's got to have a vague idea about the trustworthy message or, you know, he's just got to have a loose kind of... Uh, no, he's got to hold it, how? Firmly. He's got to have a firm grasp of the message of truth. Okay, why? Well, two things. One, so that he can encourage others by it. And two, so that he can refute those who oppose it. See, this is a... It's not easy to do. You know, and someone comes into the congregation and they're very charming and very nice and they're wanting you to get involved in some other thing to actually say to them, no, no. It's not easy. And it will attract opposition uh, because it's frontline spiritual warfare kind of stuff. Uh, Two Kings doesn't say this, but I reckon Josiah must have copped a lot of opposition. You think so? Absolutely. And like Josiah, he takes that godly courage which says, look, we're not going to turn to the right, we're not going to turn to the left, we know what the gospel is, and we're going to stick to that. Thank you very much. It takes the passion of the person who's not self-interested, is not concerned about what others think, but who truly loves and obeys God with a passion, with their heart, with their soul, no matter the cost. Now, I've spoken about church leadership, but this is actually something which applies to us all because we are a family of God's people, we're a community. And we actually all need to be like this. We all need to have that steely commitment to the gospel and a willingness to refute those things which will actually damage the gospel. In fact, it makes church leaders' job a whole lot easier when we're all committed to these truths committed to teaching the gospel and committed to, refute, committed to staying on track. In 1851, 
gold was discovered in Australia. A great moment. Changed the nation. Psalm 19, which we looked at a a couple of months back, says that there is something which is sweeter than honey from the comb and it's more precious than much pure gold. You know what it is, don't you? It's the unadulterated, it's the clear word of God. And friends, we need to stick to the word of God. We need to be passionate about the word of God. We need to know the word of God. We need to obey the word of God. And we need to refute anything that will change the word of God. All right? Let me finish off there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for that amazing discovery made so long ago that we now benefit from because it's now in our Bibles. Father, we thank you for the uh, passion and the commitment of Josiah, how you worked in his heart. We pray the same for ourselves. Uh, Help us to be uh, clear on the gospel. Help us to be passionately committed to the gospel. Help us to uh, be thoroughly committed to obeying you Uh, irrespective of the cost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to sing a